three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jeez. some of these people. I just, Put down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode 23. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and I'm delighted to have back one of my previous guests to talk about three incredibly compelling topics, including the future of the 9 to 5 job, with rapid advances in robotics and AI and machines being able to carry out traditionally human activities, what will this mean for the so-called 9 to 5 job? The cost of college. Why is college so expensive and getting pricier by the day? And what would student loan forgiveness mean for the cost of college in the long term? And finally, cryptocurrency for dummies. All about blockchain, Bitcoin, and why the future of money just might be crypto. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Keep those emails coming, guys. Nervous at gmail.com. Nervous at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast. And as I mentioned um, in last week's episode, we were also on Twitter now at Nervous Habits underscore and on YouTube at Nervous Habits Podcast. So there's lots of ways for you to get in touch um, with me and share your feedback, your insights, your thoughts, suggestions. Uh, and there's really no excuse now because we're pretty much everywhere you can find content, you'll find uh, Nervous Habits. Um, so guys, I-, I am very thrilled to have back a guest who um, I had on, I think, six or seven episodes ago, great friend of mine, um, and I know that has been uh, incredibly well received by by the listening audience, and that is Stefanos Axios. Stefanos, welcome back to Nervous Habits. Hey, thanks, Ricky. It's, it's about time. Yeah, it's a, it, it really hasn't been that long. Um, so Stefanos is coming to us uh, live via FaceTime audio. We actually, uh, we initially wanted to do the episode via Discord, which was the listening medium that I used a couple episodes back uh, for the episode on vegetarianism with Eric Martinez. But I know a few of you mentioned mentioned to me that the audio was a little bit choppy and Eric cut out. So hopefully we won't have this problem with FaceTime this time around. So Stevanos, make sure you're on a, a secure connection. Get your roommates off the Wi-Fi. Ah, you got it. Um, so... You know, I I, I don't, I don't want to um, bore the listeners with your background yet again, um, but in, you know, a sentence or two, could you kind of share a little bit about your perspective and, and your life experience and what you're bringing to these, to the discussion about these issues? So I'm a mechanical engineer. I work uh, in the aerospace industry on commercial satellites. Uh, so I've got 13 or 14 on orbit right now. Uh, so low earth orbit imaging uh, selling data to places like Google, uh, agricultural companies, finance, uh, and whoever else wants those nice images. And in case any of you have not yet listened to episode 17, um, one of my personal favorites that we've done, Stevanos and I actually discussed, um, among other things, space exploration and the necessity for potentially um, expanding beyond Earth. And we also discussed aging and uh, finance. So uh, in addition to being a mechanical engineer, Stevanos, I consider you to be one of the most well-read, well-informed people I know, which is why you have a breadth of interest, not just you know in the sciences. Well, I appreciate that, Ricky. It's only trying to grow it further. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you try to stay informed by listening to Nervous Habits. That was your. Uh, that was a softball, buddy. Softball promotional <laughs> technique. Sure. So I want to dive in by beginning our discussion of <clears throat> the future of the nine to five job. Uh, you and I, as well as other friends of ours, have talked ad nauseum about 
the, just just the the fact that most people, not just in America, really worldwide, they spend eight, at least eight, maybe ten, maybe twelve hours a day of their lives for most of the week in a fixed location in an office space doing their work and. As the world is beginning to change and move online, it begs the question, you know, what what does this mean for um, the evolution of the nine-to-five job? Uh, and how how will automation impact how most Americans in particular spend their, their time? And as you know, Stevanos, no matter what job you have, you find yourself sitting behind a desk on a computer screen, whether you're an engineer, a social worker, a bookkeeper, a consultant, a lawyer, an accountant, what have you. And because the majority of work itself is increasingly executed over a computer, what this means is that geography is becoming more and more relevant. You see more and more people working from home or working remotely, which is a concept we've spoken about quite a bit um, and Tim Ferriss explores in the 4-Hour Workweek. So I guess the first barrier that's being broken by the modern way is the geographical limitations of working at a physical location. People no longer need to do that. But the second barrier that's being broken is 9 to 5. It's no longer true that your work is confined to a 9 to 5 hour block of time, an 8-hour block. The global age is demanding a different structure. Time zones dictate there's no reason to, to, to do work just from 9 to 5. You have collaborative software, uh, working on a team so work can get done around the clock, handed off from the American team to you know the East Asian team, then to the European team. So what do you think about those those two barriers in particular, the, the, geographical, the geographical limitations that are being broken and also the, the impact on time? I think they both work in parallel to uh, achieve a very similar and positive result. So I think they both break barriers to um, having people involved in the workforce. Uh, and I think as a result, you'll have a more productive society, uh, more resources, and uh, a more well-off population. Uh, I, I think uh, allowing that kind of flexibility just allows for greater opportunities for the workforce for people to be uh, a part of the workforce. And this is a, a fairly recent transition. You know, if you talk to your your parents, and I know I, I, I you know I know your your dad, uh, you know, lived in Greece, so I'm sure it was different there. But if you talk to you know your your mom or your relatives, up until I would say 10, 15 years ago, people were confined to one physical location, and people were working that eight, maybe ten hour, um, you know, workday. Now you see the barrier between work life balance is really eroded because of the onset of, of you know the smartphone um, and being able to bring your laptop home and having iPads and other devices that you know you can you can use pretty much wherever you want. And do you see this? I, I know you kind of alluded to it in your last answer, but but you see this as a positive development for um, for the workforce or negative because that that work life you know divide is really becoming non-existent. I think it's generally positive, and I think that because I think the flexibility and autonomy in one's work is generally very favorable and, and contributes to a greater satisfaction with your work. So I think any any opportunity to increase that flexibility and autonomy helps, especially uh, I think about people that might have family events that they might not be able to attend to. Uh, if they didn't have the ability to do remote work. Uh, I think of someone in my office who is working in Texas right now because he doesn't want to move his family just quite yet. Uh, my company is affording him the ability to do his work from Texas and in the meantime until he does make the move and his kids graduate from uh, high school. 
So I think it. I think it's uh, positive. So okay. So so what you're saying is that the the individual, you know, work satisfaction, a person's level of of comfort at their place of employment probably leads to less attrition if if they're if they're afforded that flexibility, like in the case of your coworker. Um, and I, I think you know I, I think that's a it's a fair point. And when we think about AI and its pro- proliferation in the next you know 10, 15, 20 years, there are two questions that kind of emerge from that as we we look to the next evolution in you know how we work. The first question is. What jobs will AI replace that humans currently have? And that's that's a big question. Um, so how would you how would you approach that? So I think it's easier to think about what jobs might be displaced, and less easy to think about what jobs might be created with new technology. So I think the obvious ones are uh, cab drivers, chefs, cooks, maybe to some extent for fa- in, in fast food environments. It's very funny that, yeah, that, that, that the first one you you think of is uh, is autonomous driving cars, which is a good point. The second one is food. I mean, that's that's an interesting, because I would actually argue, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to make the case later on, um, that creating, that jobs that require creativity, like making a, a plate of risotto with, with you know, uh, a new recipe or combining, you know, different meats and different flavors, those jobs, you know, are ones that might require the, the human element, might require someone who doesn't, you know, have the rigidity of, uh, of a robot or, you know, AI. But, uh, I mean, th- th- those are two ones. Can you, think of, can you think of anything else? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll just qualify what I said earlier about food. I think, I, I definitely agree with what you said. I think, uh, Things that are that require like a human element of, uh, I guess, art- artistic expression won't be automated. But I see like fast food, particularly being taken over by AI. I think McDonald's, Burger King, things like that. That there's no uh, artistic expression there. Well, I think it's. Is little. <laughs> I, I hope I hope the the executives at McDonald's and Burger King are not listening because Stevanos does not think that the the, the creation of the Big Mac and Whopper requ- uh, you know requires any artistic expression. Yeah, I mean, maybe from a research uh, standpoint, but every Big Mac and Whopper is probably pretty similar. So okay, so so I think you're talking about you're delineating between jobs that machines are starting to perform now, like taking orders. And potentially, like when you have a fast food franchise and they're just putting together a formulaic recipe step by step, those might be displaced by um, by robots. But I mean, I got to ask you, couldn't you make the case that AI could do just about any job? I mean, you could program a robot to do your taxes, to administer anesthesia before a surgical procedure, to, to craft a legal argument, to design an apartment. And we've had this discussion. If you remember, we had it in Astoria. I remember it very vividly. What's to say that you could not just have a world of AI bots working every single job that people like you and I work now, um, and humans would be re- rendered, you know, obsolete consumers? Just like if you ever saw Wally, the the wheelchair bound uh, characters in that movie. What do you think of that? I think it's a great point, but um, we've. I think we've seen in history. I think that. There have been periods uh, where automation has been a great fear, and what's dis- generally discounted is the fact that yes, automation does displace and get rid of jobs, but it has a tendency to create new jobs in that wake. Uh, direct jobs associated with that with that new technology, with that new 
technology, whether it be design and maintenance of the technology, or uh, even indirectly by increasing productivity. So companies with AI no longer have to spend so much money producing some product, they can now spend some of that money and time producing different products. And in that way, they'll need new employees. So I think it's easy to think of, although for some reason it's not easy right now, <laughs> to think of jobs that won't exist in the future, but it's harder to conceive of jobs that will exist as a result. I hear what you're saying. I think what you're alluding to is like the onset of the television when it displaced books and the onset of the internet and, you know, kind of the, the phobias that took you know, took hold of society then that, you know, people would, there wouldn't be anything for people to do and everything would be mobile and online. But, I mean, if you think about the first, for, for me, a couple of years ago, I don't know when exactly, when you first started seeing jobs displaced by technology were probably like self-checkout counters at the supermarket or you mentioned like a kiosk at a um, you know fast food place like that is literally I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head but that's essentially taking jobs from you know tens of thousands of Americans every year and this this becomes almost a political argument about that but so when you say that people are focused on the jobs that AI is taking but not that it's creating um, I think that a lot of people would struggle to to see that side of it. Yeah, I totally understand what you mean. I think it's, you know, maybe now is not quite as similar in the past. But in the past, data has, uh, I looked at a few charts, it's interesting. Since the early 1920s, when we, when society began having this, uh, this uh, fixation on automation taking away work, uh, the employment rate relative to the entire population has stayed relative has stayed constant despite these technological changes so if we look at history it seems like it seems fair to say that whichever new technologies display some jobs new jobs will come and fill that that gap but you know I acknowledge that now is different than the past because technology is changing at a far greater pace will will it be the same I'm not sure. For sure. And, and I think there is a good amount of controversy. I mentioned the self-checkout. Um, people, when, I, I think the last couple of years, there was an article on, on Forbes and on Futurism that I'm going to link, but uh, people were essentially protesting self-checkouts because they were concerned about, um, you know, uh, displacing jobs. And and I think it, it, it just becomes one of those, you know, one of those situations where we won't know what the impact is until a couple of years down the line where we'll look back and a lot of people might might say that their fears were warranted and it might just have amounted to a whole lot of, of nothing. So um, what's your take on that? Uh, well, I, I was just thinking about it. I thought of, a, I guess, a good example or an example of uh, new jobs being created in the wake of jobs being automated out. So I think the a good case study is Amazon right now uh, currently, a majority of their workforce is uh, blue-collar, working in uh, manufacturing houses, moving boxes, uh, helping to ship all this, all, all these products to fulfill their one-day and two-day shipping uh, guarantees. Anyways, uh, obviously, manufacturing and assembly floor work—that's in all likelihood going to be automated at some point through robotics or through some means. Uh, Amazon. Is announced they're spending 750 million dollars to retrain those workers in skills that are in greater demand. For example, software engineering. So I think 
yes, those those jobs in the on the manufacturing floor will no longer be there. But now that Amazon is growing, there's a greater need for software engineers or quality engineers or uh, program managers or whatever whatever might be needed in a software company. So as, through Amazon's growth, they'll need more workers, more workers trained in different disciplines, and I think they're you know making the step to retrain the workers to fulfill that need. You know, and, and I, I think that's very encouraging to hear, Stefanos, because Amazon being the largest or one of the largest companies in the world employing, I, I don't know, 700, I think I saw a figure, 650,000 people. If I would say that if they were to pivot to, you know, um, replacing most of their workforce with AI, a lot of stores would follow suit. So it is encouraging to hear that you mentioned they're, they're investing in training their, their workforce and they, they're not necessarily looking to replace their manufacturing team. Do you know if, if Walmart it falls down on one side or the other? Yeah, I mean, I would hope for their own sake. They're desperately trying to compete with Amazon. So I imagine, I mean, it's one of the companies is going to automate the assembly floor work first and whichever, and the other one will follow suit soon after, I'd imagine. So I think they'll both uh, transform. Yeah, and, and it, look, it looks like uh, Walmart actually, believe it or not, uh, employs more people than Amazon. Amazon's around 650,000. Walmart's last count looks like 2.2 million uh, and, and 1.5 of those are in America. So that's it is an important uh, factor that we're going to look out for in the coming years. And, you know, I guess the question that, that we need to now ask from like a, a philosophical values point of view, why does a human, you know, matter? Why does a, let's say, Stevanos, that you get the equivalent work output from a human and a robot. Why should we employ a human over a robot if in some cases the robot might be cheaper? Just kind of ponder that for a moment. And I, I, I have a few thoughts, but wanted to get your take on it first. So I think from a societal standpoint, uh, we want to maximize productivity. We want because maximizing productivity generates greater wealth uh, for for society. And if that wealth is distributed in a in a equal way, we're we're all better off. So if the robot is more productive, I think the robot should be performing the work. But if we do uh, enter an age where people are out of work and are displaced such that they can't work, where some of that those that wealth created by that extra productivity of the ro- of these ro- robots needs to d- be distributed I think to those people that were displaced and I think uh, Andrew Yang current presidential candidate is uh, talking about that uh, incessantly at every debate and at every chance he has with his universal basic income concept mm-hmm. uh, and I think that ties directly into this this idea of automation and the great wealth that automation and robots create in performing these jobs at a lower cost. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your your reasoning is such that we have we have an allegiance to our fellow humans, and if we have a matrix like you know war with the machines, you know we have to we have to make sure that we're supporting one another, and you know can't let the machines get too powerful. I guess maybe I, I guess my question was more what humans have that robots don't, because as automated systems become better at doing jobs that humans perform today. The jobs that remain monopolized by humans, in my opinion, they'll have one defining characteristic, and that's the fact that a human is doing them. Um, so in terms of what a human can offer that a robot can't, for me, the first and foremost characteristic is social interaction because humans 
other humans will will always desire the intangible, instinctive difference that only interactions and friendships with real humans can provide. You know, the, the, there's tons of research out there for the positive health effects of touch um, and the psychological boosts of, you know, to, to um, me, you know, medical patients, to veterans, to people who are dealing with trauma. Um, and San Francisco companies offer professional cuddling services. Um, and t- I mean, today, uh, or, or, or rather, you know, in the future, you might have uh, these these services, professional cuddling services, viewed on par with cognitive behavioral therapy. They're that important. Beyond that, beyond the social interaction piece, I think that friendship is another characteristic that automated systems won't be able to completely fill. Certain activities that are combined with a level of social interaction, like eating a meal, are already seeing a trend towards paid friends. I don't know if you've heard of this. I, I was doing research on this. Thousands of internet viewers are already paying to watch what's called mukbang or live video streams of people eating meals, which originated in Korea to remedy the feeling of living alone. And so in the future, it's 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 possible to imagine people whose jobs are to eat meals and engage in conversation with clients, almost like a, a cleaned up escort service. So I don't think that, you know, robots could duplicate that either. And as well, you, you know, beyond that, beyond that, just like economically speaking, I guess that's, that's my last point. Right now, it's still not feasible to develop robot replacements for all jobs. So you mentioned... Um, Amazon's doing it. it. Seems like training and investing in a human is still cheaper for now. So, how do you feel about these counter arguments? Are are any of these particularly convincing of the ways that uh, a human employee is still you know more beneficial, potentially more versatile than a robot? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, definitely agree with your your point on the importance of human interaction and robotics' inability to provide to ever genuinely provide that. Uh, that interaction and I think what's more I think robots until we reach some if we ever reach some point where robots are robotics are sentient in some way I think they'll they'll always be missing a creative component that uh, humans have and that can't be that can't be uh, simulated yeah and this is I mean we could literally have a whole episode a whole discussion on the sent the the potential or rather the necessity for sentience and consciousness and creativity because who's to say I mean I agree with you Stephanos but you could make the counter argument you could say like why does a robot need to be able to think and feel autonomously in order to be creative you know couldn't a robot solve a problem in a you know a, an original unique way without having that sentient component you know what I mean like like you could come down and make that argument so for sure and I don't know I, I think it also comes down to like psychologically we and, and I think this is what you were saying we as humans I'm sure you've seen movies like her with Joaquin Phoenix and Ex Machina there's so many good robot movies I, I've mentioned a bunch of them on the pod where you have people who form romantic uh, platonic intense um, emotional, physical, spiritual, mental connections with a robot. Some people might say those are um, as strong, as intense as you know human connections. But I personally don't think that that can be the case because there's never going to be that mutual respect, that equality. You know, if, if someone's a sentient, conscious human and someone is essentially a pre-programmed collection of, of parts. What do you think about that? I really like that point. I've never really thought about that. Uh, I think what's interesting about that is that, uh, yeah, maybe you can, maybe in the future robotics can simulate like a human interaction, but you as the person, what we 
part of that direction we enjoy is, is that knowing what's on the other side is genuinely human. I, I think that genuine part is important, and I think it's something we that's critical to our to how we value our interactions with other people. And you know, I'd be remiss not to mention Westworld at this point, and I've mentioned Westworld a ton on this pod. Uh, you've you've seen it, right? Yeah, of course, I love that show. So you know where I'm going with this. It's it, you know, essentially, it's a it comes down to a power dynamic. A robot will always do what whatever you want. I mean, unless you have like the robot up, uprising, and I think that that's another reason why there's not that egalitarianism. And you know, as we there's one more topic I want to mention um, when we talk about automation, and this is the perfect segue. We haven't even talked about like the, the uh, sex robots, and that's something that is being developed in, I believe it's Japan, um, in, in Eastern Asia, and you mentioned that at the beginning of our discussion, you said people focus on the jobs that are going to be displaced by automation, but not the jobs that are created. I mean, <laughs> I guess, you know, when you, when you think about sex robots, yeah, they're potentially displacing <laughs> prostitutes, but they're also creating new jobs for a new field. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you have any strong um, opinions on that because, I mean, you know, look at Westworld. People, people have you know these these primal desires, with, and and as you've seen through you know the development of history, it's always going to be satiating our appetites for consumption and for sex. And I think it's very possible that this is a, a you know growing, booming industry five, ten years from now. Oh, I totally agree. Uh, I think uh, Japan is a is a great example of it. Uh, and it's happening now, even in these really early stages where uh, I don't really know what these robots are like. But my understanding is that they're relatively simple. I mean, I haven't ever I've never seen or read anything to make me think that they're Westworld like uh, robotics walking around Japan. Yeah, and there's actually, I, I, just, I just did a quick, a quick search. This is very funny. There's an article by, by The Sun, um, a UK publication, and it's and it actually says, I, I don't know if this is um, if this is a serious, it looks like, it looks like a, a serious uh, article, and it says that sex robots could fuel a birth rate crisis in Japan as lonely men opt for AI girlfriends. Now, I understand that's clickbait, in large part clickbait, but, you know, I could see a situation where um, when you when you talk about the the net positive or benefit impacts of automation, people are essentially spurning human contact and human relationships in favor of those um, automated you know connections. So I think that's you know that's an important um, unintended con- consequence we might see in the future. And I mean, let me ask you one more question, just if you can elaborate on this. You know, you have a background in engineering. You know a ton more about computers and machines than I do. Can you just be specific when you say at the beginning of, of the, the segment, you mentioned that the AI, the automation boom will create potential jobs for the future. I mean, what what potential jobs? Like like what what goes into, you know, let's say you're, you're creating a self-checkout or, you know, a, a robot that can stock shelves or, you know, uh, uh, do your taxes that can uh, crunch numbers. Like, like what are the jobs that go into programming and maintaining that? Yeah, so self-driving cars, for example. Um, yes, it's a, in the future, there will be no driver. So you'll that profession will no longer exist. The, the result of that are hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs in software engineering, in product development, in program management. Uh, sure, there are some 
you know, customer service uh, jobs, uh, and you know, as a result, I, I think I think it it speaks for itself. All those jobs did not exist at some point. All those software engineering jobs for autonomous driving did not exist, and now with autonomous cars, they do. And I think uh, more jobs will continue to be created as the autonomous vehicle becomes more ubiquitous and we start adding new accessories to these autonomous vehicles, people playing video games in the car, people uh, participating in different activities. I, I, can't, I can't imagine what, uh, what, what we'll be doing in the car when it is autonomous, but I'm sure we won't just be sitting there looking out the window. You'll be in the backseat with your sex robot, maybe. Yeah, so maybe you'll be doing that. So you'll need, you'll need that sex robot for your vehicle. And so some engineer and some, some company with some, will have to hire some employees to build that that car sex robot. So, <laughs> okay, so um, so what you're saying is it's it's not it's, it's not even just creating the product, but it's also continuing to maintain it. You know, you're yeah, exactly you're working on. I, I I don't know what this means, but I've heard software engineers say like the back end. Like I have friends and family that work at Facebook and you know Twitter and Instagram, and they're always talking about like oh they have system maintenance on the back end, like all that stuff that goes into automation that we don't think about. Yeah, exactly. There there's going to be software updates and, and meet just maintenance of these uh, maintenance of these uh, these uh, these systems um, upgrades to these vehicles um, and also you know like we talked about add-ons to those vehicles as now we're freed up from driving there will be new activities and you know it's not limited to software engineers companies need more than just software engineers to operate mm. so you'll have professions uh, that are required you know, in other disciplines. So I, I think, I don't think it's a zero sum. I think uh, the displacement of of uh, cab drivers driving in general, I don't think uh, will result in a nest loss of jobs. I think there will be a growth in jobs to fill that that gap. Absolutely. Um, and and I wanna I wanna wrap up this discussion, but. So on a scale of 1 to 10, Stephanos, as we look to the future of automation and um, how it's changing the landscape of the 9 to 5 job, how worried do you think the ordinary person should be? 1 being not worried at all, 10 being, you know, you're, you're freaking out, you're, you're going underground into a bunker to wait for the nuclear apocalypse. So I'd say, uh, I don't know, 6 or 7. I think people, I don't think people should be anxious, um, but I think people should be vigilant in watching the trends and trying to realize and anticipate what skills will be required in the future and making sure that they are keeping up to date with those. Because I think that during that period uh, where jobs are displaced, there will be some time where that those new jobs haven't been created yet. Mm. So there may be a period where jobs are displaced and the new jobs haven't quite uh, uh, come online. So, uh, yeah, just be vigilant and... Uh, and try to anticipate what skills might be needed in the future. I'd probably say, yeah, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit concerned. I feel better after, after, uh, um, you know, all the the, the different um, elements of automated jobs that that I didn't know existed before. But yeah, I'd probably say like a seven. So I guess you know, time will tell what what happens there. I want to shift gears and discuss the the cost of college, and um, this is something that's that's very much been in the public domain in the last year or so. When you have political candidates that are talking about forgiving student loans, um, and you have the rising you know uh, cost of college tuition, 
And as you know, Stefanos, college education in America, it's, it's outrageously expensive. Specifically, we're talking about the private uh, for-profit colleges. Let me throw some numbers at you just to kind of set the scene. Today in 2019, the United States spends more on college than almost any other country in the world, according to the 2018 Education at a Glance report, which was released recently by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, that's OECD. And all told, including contributions of individual families and the government in the form of student loans, grants, and other assistance, Americans spend about $30,000 per student a year, nearly twice as much as the average developed country. Only one country spends more per student than America on college education, and that country is Luxembourg, where tuition is nevertheless free for students thanks to government outlays. Um, In fact, a third of developed countries offer college free of charge to their citizens, and another third keep tuition very cheap, so less than $2,400 per year. And just a, a little more data for you compiled from USA Today. In 1975, this was back in Jay's era, uh, private tuition, fees, room and board, the, the sticker price as it's called, was thirty six eighty, three thousand six hundred and eighty dollars In 1990, the sticker price rose up to $13,480. By 2000, it was $22,240. In 2010, it was $36,470. And last year in 2018, it was $48,510 a year uh, for the private tuition fees, room, and board. And that's on average. If you look at USA News 2019 college rankings, the top colleges this year have sticker prices of 62750 that's Princeton, 67580 that's Harvard, and 73446 that's your alma mater, my friend, Columbia. Yeah. And that's for one year, uh, colleges four, as you know. So, I mean, are, are these numbers su- surprising to you? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I was looking at the bill for college in my third and fourth year when I was full, finally becoming cognizant of it, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I was starting to figure out, okay, what my monthly payments were going to be on a basis on that that, that you know, loan basis. So, it's not. I'm not. I'm not surprised that it's uh, continuing to rise. And it, it really, it really makes you sick to your stomach when you when you when you start to to think about. Hey, uh, a year at Columbia is seventy three thousand dollars. Think about all the the ways that you can invest almost you know two hundred eighty three three hundred thousand dollars over the course of four years. That's assuming, of course, you don't get any aid. But before we we dive into the literature and, and the research on the topic, uh, how would you explain to listeners just why private for profit universities in America are so expensive? So I don't think it's um, so it's not limited. First of all, yeah, I don't think it's not limited to pr- uh, private. Uh, for-profit. I think it runs the gamut. Private for-profit, private non-profit, uh, and also uh, public non-profit schools. They're all extremely expensive and getting more expensive at a rate much faster than inflation. So I, I totally agree with those those numbers that you talked about earlier are totally jive with the, what, I, what I found when I was doing some research. And in I guess when looking at it, what was most surprising about these costs is that the fact, average faculty wages have not increased at the same rate that tuition has increased. And you'd think that there, you know, the reason we're going to university, to college, is for uh, an education. So you'd imagine if, if that tuition is rising, that the salaries of these professors must be rising in kind, but that's not the case. Hmm. So I think uh, one of the primary reasons uh, that 
uh, higher education has become so much more expensive has to do with uh, bigger bigger spending by the colleges on non-faculty uh, expenses. So I'll quick, very quickly kind of go through that. I think based on what my based on what I, I found reading on this topic, ever since the 1960s when the U.S. News World Report came out, uh, schools have been competing for the best students, mm-hmm. and in you know, it, so. They're competing for the best students, and the best students, what do they look to? They look to the U.S. News and World Report to figure out which schools they want to go to. And the best schools will usually appear on that list because of test scores. So it's kind of like circuitous. The best schools they need, the best students to improve their ranking to get more of the best students. But what else attracts those best students is uh, also bigger facilities, uh, you know, more on-campus activities, and uh, generally more administrative uh, stuff. And I'll just I'll just end with you know, so you know, we talked about the tuition rising so quickly. Big part of it is the these bloated administrations. So since 1995, administrative positions. The number of administrative positions has increased by over 60%, 10 times the rate of growth of faculty positions. And it's, it's interesting, it, what, what correlates well with that is the uh, average student uh, administrative statistic. The, the average number of students to administrative positions has increased dramatically in that time, whereas the average number of students to faculty member has stayed constant. So a big reason is the are, is these bloated administrations, uh, but you know, it's a function of these schools trying to compete to get the best students and get their get themselves uh, as highly ranked as possible on the CEOs News World Report. Yes, I mean you you made a bunch of, of excellent points. I want to make sure our listeners, you, you know, we really drive them home with with everyone here. So the first thing that you said, which I actually found in my research as well, is that the percentage of, of budgets used for instruction used to pay the faculty is very low. Um, and I found the same thing that in the in the last fifty years, the percentage of the total budget that was used to pay to pay faculty has fallen. Um, in you know nineteen seventy. Uh, a university would have allocated about 40% of their budget directly to paying professor salaries. Right now, it's more like 30%. So a lot of those costs are going to, uh, I don't know if you said administrative, but actually uh, paying for the facilities. And certainly a big component of it uh, that you emphasized was the the competitive element, that you have these schools that are trying to uh, you know attract the same fixed class of students. And how do they do that? By having the flashier amenities, um, by trying to, you know, outdo the the school that's below you or above you on the U.S. News and World uh, Weekly ranking. So that's that's certainly a, a big component of it. Another thing that, that's grown in the past, you know, uh, 5, 10, 15 years, I think, is student services. So when we went to, co- I mean, I guess we went five years ago, it's pretty recent, but, you know, if you went to college in the 90s or the early 2000s, you didn't have a lot of services on campus that are being offered now. Nowadays, you have counseling and healthcare on campuses, non-instructional roles. You have, um, you know, people who are uh, gender, advi- uh, you know, uh, sexuality and gender and um, diversity advisors and uh, peer mentors and all these, you know, academic support, personal counseling and healthcare uh, roles and and um, you know services that are on the rise, and that eats up a, a big chunk of the budget uh, as well. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, you said it much better than I did. Um, no, yeah, I think that's the case. That uh, you know, it's a big, big part of it is these expanded services that the schools are offering students now 
and they compete for students with ever-expanding services that's only increasing the price tag of these schools. And if you think about it, like back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, a lot of Americans used to just go to school at home or excuse me, <laughs> they used to live at home and commute to school. They didn't, they weren't homeschooled for college. They lived at home and commuted to school. But nowadays, maybe the, the biggest difference, and this is something I read about in an article by The Atlantic, which I'm going to link for you guys, is that the a larger chunk of American college students are likely to live away from home and living away from home is expensive. So the bundle of services that an American university provides and what a university in France or or Spain or England provides is completely different because a greater proportion of Americans are living, excuse me, on campus. And so whereas, you know, 50 years ago, a college was mainly designed to be um, you know, a classroom and paying the, the faculty and actually providing an education. Now, a college is almost like a city. You know, you go to a, on a college campus, you have your shopping centers, you have, uh, you know, medical office, you have public safety, you have student services, um, you know, study centers, you have um, lounges and athletic facilities. It's, it's almost like the, the learning, the educational component is second fiddle. That's the minority. So I think that kind of uh, take like a holistic perspective. That's the biggest difference in why uh, private universities are so expensive in America relative to other other countries. And just to clarify, I know you you had mentioned that it's that the cost is is rising not just for private uh, for profit colleges, and it's an important distinction to make because the the largest system college system in America is actually the public university system. So. Three out of every four American college students attend a school in the public system, which is, of course, funded through state and local subsidies along with students' tuition dollars and federal aid. And in this public system, the high cost of college has as much to do with politics as economics. So state legislators are are spending less and less per student on higher ed in the last three decades. Um, And it's leaving what was once world-class public universities begging for money. And so the easiest way for universities to make up for the cuts was to shift some of the cost onto students, um, essentially to, to find richer students to pull in. And so some universities began to enroll more full-paying foreign and out-of-state students to make up the difference. For example, over the last decade, you look at Purdue University, Purdue has reduced its in-state student population by, by about 4,300 while adding 5,300 out-of-state and foreign students who pay triple the tuition. Because remember, in-state and out-of-state, there's there's a distinction in in how much they pay. So they're moving away from working to educate people in their region, and now they're just competing for the most elite and wealthy students. Are are you aware of that distinction? Um, You you know, what's the evolution that's happened in in the public university system and how they're attracting students? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think you made a great distinction by by pointing out that it's state funding. because you know, when it comes to federal funding, it's it's a it's a it's a different and you know different different story. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to get into that yet, but um, I think from a federal funding standpoint, as federal funding has increased, uh, universities have kind of seen it like a blank check. Mm-hmm. I think I read for every dollar of federal funding provided, uh, public universities raise tuition by sixty cents. And it's not because the school became more expensive. It's purely because they want to maximize revenue. And if the if the government is willing to fund fund these these loans uh, at any cost, and students will go at any 
cost, which seems to be the case now. People, I think, are becoming more uh, skeptical. Uh, then the university will, uh, without question, raise the prices. Um, and I think that's where more regulation needs to come in and make sure to ensure that these schools can't continue to raise price as more aid is given. All right. So can you just share that figure one more time? You said for every dollar in federal aid, there's 60 cents. What, what, what was the statistic? Yeah. So for every doll, additional doll, dollar in loan money made available to students, schools will raise the price of tuition by 60 cents. Mm. So okay, this is this is something I really I I and we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about this, but I wanna I wanna drive home. Essentially, it's this paradox, and it, it's it, you know once we share with you, you're gonna wanna pull your hair out. It seems like if someone gets you know a thirty thousand forty thousand dollars off their full tuition going to either a private or I guess in that case a private for profit university, it seems like wow the college is being really generous. But what Stephanos just said is that it's almost like an illusion. Um, that when they're they're writing this blank check, giving out you know federal aid, it's not actually you know making it cheaper for the student. If you look at like historically what's happened with financial aid in 1970, financial aid programs were almost non-existent. So generally, middle middle income people didn't get money from the federal government. The large majority of, of students didn't. But what happened in 1978, Congress passed a bill known as the Middle Income Student Assistance Act. This made all undergraduates, regardless of their income class, eligible to receive subsidized loans, and middle-income students were eligible for Pell Grants. That's according to the uh, NASPA, the Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education. And so you had more and more students applying for financial aid. And here's the kicker, and this this is what I mentioned before. Because the universities knew that a greater proportion of students would get financial aid money, they raised their fees in order to take advantage of that, to capture it themselves. This is, this is known as what's called the, the Bennett Hypothesis, and it's the ironic idea that student loans, student loans, you guys, are behind skyrocketing tuition. This is completely um, you know, contradictory. It, 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 you know, it, it's paradoxical, the idea that you're getting more money in loans, so colleges are, are raising their tuition. Um, and I, to me, that's, that sounds problematic, and it's something that's, that's been happening for a long time. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're scamming the system, I think. <laughs> you know, they're, they're getting a dollar. We're, we're receiving a, a loan of an additional dollar, but for every additional dollar we receive, we have to pay uh, an extra 60 cents. So it's, it's, it, it, it only benefits these universities to do it. Um, it's, yeah, I, I think it's... Uh, you think you'd see this kind of thing on Wall Street, not in higher education. I was just thinking Jordan Belfort. I was thinking like the penny stocks. It almost sounds yeah. like one of those one of those pyramid schemes. One of those one of those scams. You go, you go to buy a used car off the lot, and they tell you, uh, "Hey, you know, we usually sell it for three hundred fifty dollars. We'll give it to you for for two sixty five if you do a financing plan with you know twelve percent interest, whatever." And they spin it in such a way where it sounds like it's benefiting you, but according to this benefit hypothesis, guys. The reason why tuition, or big part of it, I mean, we've accounted for factors that are behind rising tuition, but student loans, especially federal aid, that's a big reason why college tuition is rising. And the net impact, Stephanos, is student loan debt. And this may be the greatest problem that we have in America. Um, And I'm glad it's been receiving a lot of attention in the national news. According to an NBC News report from earlier this year, as many as 45 million Americans have student loan debt. 45 million Americans um, that's according to a 2018 report by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And the total amount of student loan debt, 
I hope you're sitting down for this. It's about $1.5 trillion, and that's at the end of 2018. That is more than our credit card debt, and that is more than our auto loan debt. Is, is that, I mean, can you even conceptualize that? That people owe more money to colleges. And not everyone even goes to college. People owe colleges more money, universities more money than they owe on credit cards. That To me, that seems almost unfathomable. Oh, yeah. I mean, what is uh, what is our GDP? Like 20 trillion? So that's like a 12th or something of our GDP is uh, our 12th of all goods and services that we produce in a year is equivalent to the student loan debt. It's, it's incredible. And so what's happening now is you're seeing candidates for president in 2020, I believe the first one was Senator Elizabeth Warren, suggest a a radical uh, student loan repayment plan. And it involves, um, my understanding is just wiping out a lot of this debt. But um, I can't say that I know all of the nuances of the plan. I'm hoping, Stephanos, you could kind of explain for people how uh, Senator Warren or Senator Sanders or others, how their student loan um, forgiveness plan would work. Yeah, so I, I think I heard about uh, Bernie Sanders' plan. So it sounds like his plan is to put a small tax on Wall Street trades. Uh, so there are millions, I think probably in the order of millions of trades going on every day on Wall Street as people buy and sell stock. And the proposal that Bernie Sanders has is to put a small fee on each of these on each of these trades, and uh, these this fee should add up to some sum that that pays off the student loan debt. And I I I, I think I don't know what the implications would be to the to the broader economy, but I think he makes a good ethical or you know, moral point that you know we did quote unquote bail out Wall Street in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. And we, as uh, you know, the, the taxpayers that did bail them out, didn't really see any any compensation for that. Uh, at least, not not it's not readily uh, visible. Yeah. So I think uh, you know, having Wall Street pay off that debt or is is an interesting idea. And it looks like. Elizabeth Warren's plan is a little bit different, and I, I think that as the legislation you know moves through Congress, there there might be some um, you know consolidation of ideas. Uh, who knows if this will ever you know get passed? Um, a lot of it comes down to partisan politics. But there's an article on Forbes that I was reading, which really lays out the five points of Warren's plan. And number one, it would cancel fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt for every person with a household income under a hundred thousand dollars. So that's middle class Americans. If you have under a hundred thousand dollars in income, they're going to cancel fifty thousand dollars of your student loan debt. Um, it would provide substantial debt collection, excuse me, debt cancellation for every person with household income between a hundred thousand and two hundred fifty thousand. It would not tax as income student loan debt that has been canceled. Um, it would make stu- private student loan debt eligible for cancellation and streamline the student loan debt forgiveness process using data and income information that's already available to the federal government. So essentially, if you have a an income that qualifies, they're going to cancel uh, you know a significant uh, amount of your of your debt. However, you know, just reading this now, if you have a uh, you know, let's say you have a couple of hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt, I don't know that this would, necessarily alleviate your problems. And of course, if you have uh, an income in the top 5% of Americans, if you're making over $250,000, this would do nothing for you. 
And then again, you know, if you have that money, maybe this is less of a concern. But that fifty thousand dollar cancellation, uh, you know, amount. It, it. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, beginning law school soon. That, <laughs> that's not going to do a whole lot for me. So initially, you know, I obviously I, I still think this is a, a, a very ambitious, um, justified undertaking. But uh, for people who have significant, uh, you know, student loan debt, I don't know if, if this is going to solve all their problems. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about. Um about Senator Warren's plan, but I, but I agree with you. Uh, you know, student loan debt, especially for people pursuing grad degrees, is uh, quite a bit more than fifty thousand uh, dollars. You know, I know law school and uh, medical school have seen student loan balances upwards of three hundred thousand dollars. So I think uh, I wonder. You know, is this a band aid solution by paying all this off? Or will we and will we continue to just get, uh, rack up debt uh, thereafter? Yeah, I, I think that's a really a really great point. Is this a band aid on a bullet wound? And what it could also be is it could also be kind of a gateway, you know, bill to more radical change. I mean, if if you know, you know, Americans by and large are conservative, and I don't mean conservative in terms of political affiliation. I mean Americans are slow to change, and so you know, potentially what Warren's doing is she's injecting this into the the discussion, the public domain, the Overton window, and she's seeing how people react. And maybe if there's public support, you know, the, the plan might scale up. Maybe you might see $100,000 cancellation in student loan debt for a greater base of people. But I mean, there are implications for this. There's a question, number one, uh, the question that I imagine a lot of Republicans might ask is, how are we going to fund this? And you know, Warren's campaign proposal specifically includes an ultra-millionaire tax, so it'd be a 2% annual tax on the 75,000 families in the U.S. who have at least $50 million in net worth. But we don't know if, you know, that would essentially cover the entire cost. And obviously, you know, who knows how that would be, would be received. I think there'd be a lot of uh, divergence about if that is a feasible option. And, you know, one last question I had for you on this, uh, on this idea of student loan forgiveness is if, Colleges responded to federal funding to student, you know, financial aid by increasing the cost of tuition. Wouldn't it be logical to assume that this would just lead to the inflation of the cost of tuition? That colleges would just bring tuition up even more to account for the difference? I was just thinking the same thing. Actually, it's 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 a dangerous. Uh, I think it might be a, a dangerous proposal without in parallel. Uh, Reforming the college uh, tuition, I guess, uh, costing uh, structure. Uh, otherwise, it might be just like you said, uh, uh, another excuse for for universities or another reason for them to write you know, some cost on a blank check. Yeah, it's it's problematic, and to be honest, I think you could make the case that the entire higher education system in America needs reform with pri- private universities and public universities. And I mentioned at the beginning of the discussion what other countries are doing, um, even if you look at like Luxembourg where, you know, tuition is free or obviously we are we are far from, <laughs> we are far from something like that, but this the system's not sustainable. I think we can all agree on that. Left, right, you know, whatever your politics, your personal preferences are, People are crippled by student loan debt. I myself have significant debt from um, undergrad. I know, I know you, you as well. You know, loan debt's coming up. Law school debt. You, you're you're going to have higher, uh, you know, uh, post secondary degree debt as well. So something needs to be done. And at least, uh, at least that this is a good first step. And we'll see if it evolves into anything more. And on the heels of this discussion that that we're having about um, about college and 
just how costly the investment is. This is kind of a personal question, but do you believe that the cost of college is worth the investment in 2019? We had a whole discussion about automation in the future of jobs. Do you believe that, you know, especially if you're taking out student loans, it's worthwhile to pay all that tuition for a private or public uh, college education in 2019? It's a great question. I see articles like daily now uh, on the Wall Street Journal asking the same, the very same thing. And I think uh, it's unfortunate to say, but I think the answer is it, it depends. Uh, <laughs> That's a cop-out, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it depends because the tuition has just risen so so fast, so much faster than the than wages. Uh, there are a lot of professions, a lot of majors and studies, disciplines that don't have the right return on investment that they did in the past. So the STEM field uh, is uh, famous, I think, now for paying relatively well. Uh, and I think I think the STEM field can have a, a good return on investment. Definitely, I think it has a good return on investment for a college education. Whereas some some majors in the humanities are they're no longer as desirable. They just the, the skills don't match up with uh, what the economy is currently demanding. Um, it's really unfortunate because those are you know great great studies. Uh, but I, I just don't think that every discipline right now has the same, the return on investment to accommodate these really high prices of, of uh, tuition. Yeah, I mean, God, this is such a multifaceted question. Um, so <laughs> thanks for thanks for giving me a, a well thought out answer. I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, and this is something my dad always said. <laughs> my dad actually, he might have said this on the episode, the episode eighteen that he did, where he talked about generational differences. But you know, he he said. Uh, Years ago, if you had a college degree, it was come to the front of the line. You know, uh, you're 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 hired. You're you know, well prepared. You've you've done all the necessary pr- uh, training and gotten the education. And nowadays, it's almost like a BA is a prerequisite for a lot of jobs. And you need that that advanced degree. You need the the MD, the JD, the MBA, um, the MPP. But on the other hand, as you said, it is context dependent. Certain jobs in in the sciences, um, in engineering fields. Absolutely, you wouldn't be able to get hired without a medical degree, excuse me, uh, a college degree. On the other hand, if you're into the creative arts, you know, if you're into uh, writing or uh, creating music or, um, I mean, anything that involves, uh, you know, expression of, in that sense, you don't need a, you you definitely don't need a college degree. Um, A lot of, you know, I mean, I think you should finish high school, but a, a lot of successful people have done so without even receiving their diploma. So it it really depends, but as you said, it is hard to defend the idea of submerging yourself in, you know, two hundred sixty thousand dollars in debt to go to Princeton or Harvard when you might end up underemployed. And to illustrate the diminishing value of a college degree, there there is a figure uh, that uh, that I had read. Uh, looks like it's from the New York Fed. I, I can share it with you guys in links. Um, and it says that one third of college graduates are underemployed. That's thirty three percent, and thirteen percent of them are in a low paying job. So we're definitely at a turning point. And 
you kind of have to have to ask yourself. It used to be assumed that you know you finish high school, you go to college. Is it worth the investment? And certainly, it's not a black and white situation, Stephanos. Like it's not as if you go to you pay full ride to Columbia or you don't go to college at all. You could go to a public university. Um, and get you know pay the in-state tuition at a lower rate, or you know maybe get a scholarship. But certainly, it's hard to defend paying sticker price at these institutions. You'd agree with that? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And the last the last segment that that I'm excited to to speak to you about is has to do uh, with cryptocurrency. In episode 17, Stevenos and I explored the uh, theoretical basis of currency. You know what? you know, what? what's the purpose of currency? Why do we have different currencies? So if, if you kind of like part one of our discussion, I would go back and listen to episode 17. And now I kind of want to uh, forecast the future of currency and look at crypto because I think that, and obviously you can speak to this uh, with far greater acumen than I can, but I think that paper money and, um, you know, silver dollars and, and the gold standard, even credit, credit cards, um, operating through banks, that's, that's going to be a thing of the past. Um, so I'm hoping that you can educate our listeners on uh, crypto because you've certainly taught me a lot about it and it's, it's definitely something to watch in the coming decades. So in the simplest terms that you can, you know, what is cryptocurrency? What's the blockchain? How, how does all this work? Sure. So I'm going to speak to Bitcoin, I think, uh, and it's representative I in a lot of ways, crypto uh, in general. So Bitcoin is a digital mean of exchange. So just like our you know, US dollars are some mean with which we purchase something, uh, Bitcoin functions or hopes to function in the same way. It's an exchange of value. The difference between Bitcoin and uh, you know, the US dollar is that it's it's decentralized. There's no, there's no governing or regulatory body uh, determining how many of these uh, Bitcoin exist. Um, whereas we have, we talked about in episode 17, you have the Federal Reserve, uh, which controls the supply of money. Um, so, crisp, in its most basic form, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. Uh, its purpose is to be a means of exchanging value. I'm, I'm removing myself from the conversation. If I had never heard of, of crypto and I just listened to your explanation, Stevanos, how is this different from like Venmo or Apple Pay? Crypto, it would appear prima facie that it's just another way to send people money virtually. Like what, what makes crypto different? So what makes it different is the decentralized nature of it. So when you say decentralized, you mean that there's no organization like the Federal Reserve that's actually, what would be the word here, that's actually like regulating what happens? Yes, yeah, so no, no, uh, no, no body regulating the currency's value. So, you know, you have really extreme instances of Germany in the 1930s with the increase, rapidly increasing the supply of money in the market and uh, producing incredible inflation. So that's an instance of a of a centralized body influencing the value of the currency. So in cryptocurrency, you do not have that. Uh, in Bitcoin, there's a fixed number of coins, and the value of those coins is based simply on market supply and demand, not on some governing body's uh, uh, wishes. 
Okay. Um, so with that in mind, I guess the first question that people might have is, how do you know it's secure? That's a great question. So what makes our, what makes our transactions on Venmo or through our bank account secure is that these banks are keeping some sort of electronic balance sheet. So when I pay you, Ricky, some money through Venmo, uh, Venmo or my, well, my bank will keep a record of me transacting some amount of money to you. Uh, so you need the bank there. Otherwise, maybe I say I paid you when in fact I, I didn't. Right. So in crypto, with cryptocurrency, you don't have that middleman, uh, that, that, that body there to uh, legitimize the, and, and uh, confirm the transactions. Instead, what you have is a, what's called a ledger. And really all it is is a, it's a public account that we all, that everyone participating on the Bitcoin blockchain has access to. And that public account is a record of every single transaction that takes place with uh, Bitcoin. So what makes it secure is that if I do pay you, pay you, Ricky, in Bitcoin, and then I say, then you tell me that I did not pay you, that public ledger is viewable by everyone else participating in the Bitcoin blockchain, and they can they can confirm that I did indeed pay you, and you can't swindle me. So that's where the security comes from. It comes from that, that public ledger. So you said there's no regulatory agency or body that's actually backing the currency like you do with dollars and, and um, different you know currency standards. But, I mean, is, who, who's responsible for actually maintaining... Bitcoin as a system is—is is there like is there like a crypto president, uh, a bit you know Bitcoin chief? Like let's say you do get swindled, who can you who can you email or contact to get your money back? I don't think you can get swindled. I, to my, I mean, I don't think there there's no Bitcoin chief. That's that's, that's what's uh, the <laughs> that, big difference. It could be you if you're interested. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't think there is there is none. I mean, it's all public on the ledger, and you know those those it's all done. I guess uh, in some agnostic way, like it's you have these transactions being processed uh, by machines, and these machines trans these machines are completing some called like crypto hashes. There are these like really intense algorithms and uh, problems to confirm a transaction, and each time one of those transactions confirmed, uh, that transaction is. "Quote unquote," printed on this public ledger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, there, there is no. It's it's self-maintaining, self-governing in that way. Got you. And if you had to pick one, what would be the the most uh, significant advantage that Bitcoin has, or not even just Bitcoin? Just think of crypto on the whole over current. You know, the, the basic currency standards that we have today. Like, why why do you think this has the potential to you know, spread like wildfire in the coming decades. There are a lot of great reasons why it's so beneficial. Uh, I think uh, I mean, I'll probably give like more than one, but I think one it's beneficial for countries with unstable governments and poor economic policies that result in like hyperinflation. I think Venezuela right now, a lot of people are turning to cryptocurrencies and in the superinflationary environment. 
You have it in uh, a few countries. I think Zimbabwe, people are participating in Bitcoin currencies. They're turning to it. Inflation is taking over again. So I think in that way, it's superior. It's it's advantageous for countries without stable central banks and financial bodies like we have here in the U.S. and Europe and China. Well, China is arguable. Like, uh, Russia, maybe. I don't know. Uh, actually, Russia is not stable either. So mostly, mostly stable in the Western world, I think. So it's advantageous in that way. And then two, I think it's advantageous in that for free trade, I think it makes free trade between countries and in the future makes free trade between countries a lot easier. Uh, and it will only, I think, make it easier in the future. And in that way it's superior uh, because I can purchase something. Uh, I don't have to do some some exchange of uh, US dollars to to yen or to uh, euros or to pesos to purchase some good in another country, I can simply operate on this blockchain, on this one of these cryptocurrencies uh, and purchase goods. So I think it's advantageous in that way as well. So what I'm hearing is it's, it's useful to have one, rather than have all these different currencies around the world, one standard uh, medium. But then if that's the case, why not just have Bitcoin? Or just Litecoin. Like, why, why do you why do you have dozens or maybe even hundreds of different types of cryptocurrencies? I think it's just because people are became obsessed with cryptocurrencies, and now everyone wants to make one. There's like a there's a load of like uh, really dumb ones. Like one called like Dogecoin. I think it's just like Dogecoin. I think it, I think it, it's like a coin with a dog on it. And I think it was created as a as a as a satire. It was satirically, and yet. People have become like incredibly invested in it as like a movement, and people are—I don't know if people are actively using it in transactions, but there is money invested in it. Uh, there, so there's just a lot of coins out there that aren't really doing anything. Nobody's really using them, uh, but in the top four or five coins that people are using, like Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin, uh, a big a big difference, for example, between Bitcoin and Litecoin is that. Bitcoin, the the amount of time and I think uh, just the difficulty to process a transaction uh, with Bitcoins is much higher than Litecoins. So mm. a transaction is processed a lot faster with Litecoin than for a Bitcoin, and I think at a lot lower energy costs. So it's uh, some of the top coins probably have some real advantages, but then when you get down to the you know past the top twenty or 50, even fifteen or ten really pretty meaningless i'd imagine <laughs> um okay great yeah and and if if you were to kind of forecast like give your your individual prediction do you think that all of these competing cryptocurrencies are going to be around you know in 30 40 years what what have you or do you think that one currency is going to emerge from the pack and that's going to be the currency that everyone's using in the future yeah so i think uh as happens with a lot of like new technology, you have a lot of a lot of buzz and interest with them. So a lot of uh, te- a lot of these participants are getting attention where they probably shouldn't, where you know, their product is probably not that great to warrant it. So I think uh, as cryptocurrency, if it does indeed become more mainstream, there'll be a shakeout where you know people will tend towards the best functioning cryptocurrencies and leave those uh, 
poorer functioning and less valuable cryptocurrencies behind. So probably, you know, no more than, I don't know, 10 maybe, 10 currencies? That's just a, just a guess. But mm. definitely, I, 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 don't, I don't see why there would be hundreds of cryptocurrencies in the future. It seems, uh, I don't know, just difficult to manage. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Even even the, the idea of 10 uh, seems kind of overwhelming. But if you think about it, we have hundreds of currencies in the world right now. So, you know, uh, why should this be any different? But I want to ask you, you know, if, if someone's listening to this and they are intrigued by crypto or they do see crypto catching on in the future, how, you know, how do you purchase or convert to crypto how does that how does that process process work for someone that wants to get started with um buying cryptocurrency i mean buying i mean cryptocurrency to purchase cryptocurrency is i think a lot easier now than it was even two years ago a year and a half two years ago uh i think the primary people you usually use these uh wallets the you know like coinbase you can purchase uh coins pretty readily on there uh depositing some cash via some bank account and then uh just choosing to buy whichever cryptocurrency you wish for a small uh i don't know how small it is i don't remember for some fee there is some transaction fee involved in buying some of these coins and much like buying shares of a stock um the quantity the amount of one coin is variable depending on the market is my understanding so if you if you want to buy like 0.5 Bitcoin today versus 0.5 Bitcoin a year ago, you're going to be paying a significantly different um, amount. Is that correct? Yeah, if it doesn't, it's been pretty stable, I think, for the past few months. But <laughs> yeah, in the past, it's been like incredibly volatile as people have viewed it more as an investment uh, than a, a currency to use on a day-to-day basis. So that's a big problem with it now. And May, might prove to be the reason cryptocurrency doesn't catch on is that it's treated like an investment and as a result it's incredibly volatile um i don't want to buy you know 10 bitcoins today and uh or a bitcoin today and think okay i can use that as a down payment on a car <laughs> you know the next day it's worth like a third and all of a sudden i i, I can't you know, afford that down payment so think that uh, stability is a requirement if it is going to be a, a currency. So, so what you're saying is people were essentially buying amounts of Ether and crypt, uh, Bitcoin and Litecoin just to sell it at the point where the value was higher so they could make a profit. And in order to for crypto to be adopted as a currency standard in the future, people would need to buy it because they believe in it, not because they want to make a profit by selling it, right? Yeah, I think people need to have confidence that the dollar, the peso, the yen, whatever, the, the currency that they're buying is going to be relatively stable. And that's a big job of the Federal Reserve. Uh, back to episode 17, their two jobs are full employment and uh, stable inflation. Money's value changing uh, from day to day or month to month in a great way just reduces people's confidence in it. And uh, it's just, it's not, it's not good for an economy for completing transactions. No, nobody likes to, to their money to appreciate and or well, to, to change uh, value so uh, randomly. 
Right. And if you can remember back in the beginning of 2017, the country and maybe even the world was swept by this fervor with crypto where everyone was on, on Coinbase. I actually, I was just starting a job at a finance company. You remember this. And I was standing in line at a, uh, I think it was uh, Naya. Oh, it's a great, this great Lebanese restaurant. And everyone was in line checking their Coinbase amount. And that's when I realized, wow, like this is really a thing right now. And uh, Stevenos and one of our other mutual friends had kind of prodded me. We have like a, a daily text chain, and they were prodding me. Hey, man, you gotta, you know, you, you gotta buy some Bitcoin. You gotta buy some Ether and some Litecoin. And I, and I actually, I took their advice. I, <laughs> I bought like way too much of these coins. And then every day we'd be, you know, kind of asking each other, you know, should we sell today? The the value is pretty high. Should we wait? It almost became like a like leisure, like an activity, um, a, you know, a, a fun passion with with friends. Um, during that that period, uh, eventually I had to sell, and I actually didn't make much of. I, I think I took a loss, thanks to you guys. <laughs> but we, we warned you. We, we told you. To, we told you not to buy. I, mean, we, I bought way too much. Did you uh, bought too much, and uh, you bought at the peak. Yeah, I bought it. The, the, buy, buy high, sell low. That's that's the idea. Um, I was a, yeah, I was an, an amateur, but to, uh, to your point, when people are treating the currency as a game or something fun to do with their friends, it's not necessarily stable. And I don't know if you look to the future, it is interesting to think about a world where you know your grandkids. Instead of having annual incomes of you know sixty thousand dollars, um, you know hundred thousand dollars. Their annual income might be like one Bitcoin <laughs> or, you know, two Litecoins. It's kind of crazy to think in those terms, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is weird. And I, I don't, I don't uh, know if we'll, we'll ever see that because of its, you know, people, how people perceive it. People perceive it as some speculative asset. And when people, it, it's, it's, it's not, it, it's not even really, a, it's not an investment either because people uh, People invest in it only because they think the price is going to go up, because they think more people will buy more of it, and uh, you know you, you don't. That's not what an investment is. An investment is uh, something that you believe will produce some some economic some some return, some value to you. And Bitcoin doesn't produce value when I buy it. It just is kind of like gold. Warren Buffett, in fact, doesn't he doesn't adamantly uh, is against purchasing gold for that very reason it, the gold produces no income it produces no no return it just is and it only increases in price because of uh, market man speculation for sure um so i think that there's it it certainly remains to be seen how readily bitcoin will be excuse me crypto will be adopted i think your point is well taken about the skepticism and there are a lot of you know people who are probably older from you know, past generations who are hesitant to make the transition, and you never know. I mean, people in our generation, uh, Gen Z, um, millennials, of course, I think might be more accepting of it, um, but only time will tell. So I want to wrap up. Uh, it's been a, a an all-encompassing d- discussion here on this episode of Nervous Habits. So we opened by talking about the future of the nine-to-five jobs, the jobs that a- the AI will displace that humans currently have, as well as new jobs. Stefanos talked about um, the software engineering components, maintenance, um, working on that back end uh, in specific industries. We talked about the uh, the um, 
uh, characteristics that only humans can provide relative to robots, social interaction, um, you know, friendships, as well as the economic implications of that. We went into the cost of college, the outrageous rise in uh, private for uh, private tuitions, and the reason for that, um, most of it being administrative and non-educational, not paying the professors, and that paradox that Stephanos mentioned, where um, for every dollar that you are uh, paying in uh, for every dollar in financial aid you get, you're paying 60 cents more. Um, the Bennett hypothesis that student loans are behind skyrocketing traditions and whether or not um, the student loan forgiveness options are feasible to alleviate that in the future. And finally, we went into cryptocurrency, um, the different types of crypto and how the ledger accounts for the transactions, the decentralized nature of crypto, um, and in the future, whether or not it will be readily adopted as a standard and not so much as an investment or, um, as was the case for my friends and I, a form of leisure. Any any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with, Stephanos? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think you closed it out really well. Well, that, that's my job. Um, so next week... We are going to be exploring another extremely compelling uh, philosophical argument. If you enjoyed the 13th episode I did on death and mortality, I think you're really going to like this one, and I'm super excited to record the episode. It's going to be on the simulation hypothesis. I'm going to tackle why you could make a powerful argument that our entire existence as we know it is a simulated reality run by a future human civilization or an advanced alien race somewhere else in the universe, and also the issue of what this means for us. How should we live our lives if we are, in fact, living in a simulated reality? It's going to be a dark and contemplative journey next week on Nervous Habits, but I hope that you're going to take it with me. Stevanos, thank you for joining me again on this episode of Nervous Habits. It's been a pleasure having you again. Yeah, it was really fun to be on, Ricky. Thanks again for having me. I uh, hope I get to come on again. Yeah, we'll see. Talk, uh, real estate yeah, we'll see if, uh, if the viewers are clamoring for your return. Um, guys, keep, keep those emails coming, nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com, nervousheavispodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at nervousheavispodcast, on Twitter at nervousheavits underscore, and on YouTube, nervousheavispodcast. And remember, when you're on the self-checkout aisle of the supermarket, pondering whether or not those jobs will be replaced by automation, make sure you check out using Bitcoin and crypto instead of the, the American dollar. Stay nervous, everyone. Take care.